Welcome to the Hourly Nerd Podcast, where we bring you the best and brightest minds in one podcast series. This week's episode is Hourly Nerd CEO Rob Biederman, who shares how to start a tech company without a tech background. Hi there, and welcome to the Hourly Nerd Podcast series. My name is Rob Biederman. I'm co-CEO and co-founder of Hourly Nerd, the largest online marketplace for on-demand expertise. It's my honor and pleasure to kick off this new and exciting podcast series with the first episode where I'll discuss how to start a tech company without a tech background. I'll go into detail about the lessons, both good and bad, that I've learned through starting this company. However, before we get the episode started, I wanted to explain a little bit more about the podcast series and what you can expect from future episodes. Every week, we're going to release one new podcast that will help your business grow. We'll cover every topic from digital marketing to financing to market research. We'll reveal the nuances for successful business growth you'll be able to listen to on your commute to work or while you get ready for a night out on the town. And when we can, we'll invite in some of our investors, customers, and partners to give you an outside perspective. I can promise that they'll always be fun, quick, and most importantly, informative. So let's cut the ribbon and get this podcast started. Hourly Nerd actually began as a class project at Harvard Business School. They uh, invented a new program called Field 3 um, in, in 2012, where students were put into 150 different teams of six, uh, given $5,000 and very few uh, rules, and told to try to start a revenue business as soon as they can. Our group uh, approached the task thinking about what our personal pain points were as, as business school students. And one of them was business school is really expensive and you've gone from making a lot of money in a job to you know making none and then on paying for tuition on top of that. So we wondered if potentially our uh, the business training we'd received uh, in previous uh, jobs could potentially be reapplied to help small businesses with, with their most pressing challenges. And this was particularly relevant for me because my dad is actually a small business owner and for years I'd leveraged the training I'd gotten at Goldman Sachs and at Bain Capital <clears throat> particularly on the finance side, uh, to help him with small tasks where just because he was older and didn't have quite as much facility with Microsoft Excel, I could do things significantly more quickly than he could and, and present them in a, in a clear way. The way that we tested demand, and this will come back later in the podcast, is we actually went out and went door to door with individual small business owners in the dead of winter in Boston in February. Uh, we put up a small landing page uh, from GoDaddy that actually cost us $9.99 and we just immediately started going into small businesses in Austin and Brighton and Cambridge and, and in Harvard Square asking if there was anything they had that we could be helpful with. Most of the SMBs were um, confused or uh, uninterested but we were able to find a solid core of five to ten folks. One of them was a organic food store, one was a bar, um, one was a dry cleaner and we were able to explain to them that we could help with challenges they had, whether it was growing their business or um, making it more efficient or finding ways to cut costs without hurting the customer experience. And we began doing these small projects, or we began selling these small projects that we then gave to MBA students from other business schools. And the way we got the other MBA students was we um, just made a post on the Facebook groups at a few non-Harvard business schools. We weren't allowed to use HBS students. We told them, you know, this is a way from your dorm room or from your apartment to make a few hundred bucks on the side. 
uh, and, and feel good about the fact that you're helping a small business. And I think it was that first set of five or 10 projects where we got phenomenal customer outcomes that made us really think there might actually be a business here. But at that point, we um, were still in the class and we began to be worried about how you know, the platform was going to scale because what we were actually doing was at the end of every day, rewriting our website to make it seem as if it was a uh, dynamic platform. But what it really was, was just a display page that one of the co-founders would go home and rewrite at the end of a day's sales. We then ask uh, MBAs to send us an email if they wanted to work on one of the projects. And this was a great, very lean, um, you know, manual way to actually prove that there was demand. But we wanted, we felt like it was important to uh, get a working technical platform in the market. So we turned to um, an online resource where you can find developers overseas who are willing to work for, um, you know, relatively limited uh, wages. And we we asked if they could possibly build us a, you know, rudimentary online marketplace. And we put that up. That took about a month to build. And my co-founder, Pat, basically didn't sleep or go to class that entire period. Um, you know, it came from a developer in Bangladesh who was just starting out. Uh, parts of it were very good. Parts of it were, um, you know, needed improvement. Um, but when we began seeing incredible volume going to the website, we began to think, oh, my God, there actually might be a real business here. And uh, that was a transformative, interesting moment. We started to get some really great PR. We were on the CNBC website. We were on CNN. Just because nobody had, um, obviously lots of MBA students over the years had had the idea of helping small businesses and finding ways to unbundle the big consulting firms and investment banks. But only just then when we started the company was the technology really able to facilitate what we were doing. Um, and at that point we began needing to raise money um, from investors. So we reached out to Mark Cuban and in 15 minutes he wrote us back saying he was interested. And we used the money that we raised largely to build out our technology team. So if you are going to start a company, I would strongly recommend either being technical yourself or convincing one of your technical friends to join you because it was really a devil of a time finding great tech talent, uh, convincing them to join us, and then you know making it worth their while, particularly in 2013, 2014. Uh, the hiring market for developers was incredibly competitive. And there was, you know, for every one gifted developer, there were probably 10 or 15 early stage companies that would have um, loved to have them. So we got lucky in that we found um, a guy named Brian Morgan who'd had some previous successes, was um, far along enough in his career that he could really be a leader, but was still young enough that he uh, wanted to, to get in and write code himself. And since we've added him, it's, it's really been transformative. What you don't realize when you're running a business without in-house technology is how slow the iterating process is. So when you're in the market every day, you're constantly getting feedback from customers and from your suppliers. If you can't update your technology, uh, you're really hamstrung and it makes it difficult competitively. So if I had one piece of advice, it would be to get to a sufficient scale as quickly as possible, then use any equity that's worth something or cash that you've raised uh, to hire the best technical talent you can find. You'll never regret a dollar that you spend on tech. Um, and it's something that tends to have compounding returns. So the sooner you start investing in your technology product, the sooner you establish the baseline for the future improvements and future upgrades. And so for the, the fact that for the first six, six to nine months we had outsourced technology, it really held us back for the first year. And if we had to do it all over again, we would we would definitely try even harder um, to invest in technology up front. 
looking back on the experience, I think there's probably six key tips um, that I'd want to share for starting a tech company without a tech background. The first is get something in the market as soon as you can. I think it was critical for us that we didn't sit around and philosophize about our idea and, you know, in a, in a somewhat classic business school way, smoke pipes and write a business plan. What we really did was we decided what we were doing and then later that afternoon we actually went out on the streets and started trying to sell it. We, we thought what we were doing at that point was selling. What I'd argue was we were actually doing customer discovery. We were finding out what the market, what parts of the market were underserved by existing options, how to create a brand message and a value proposition that would actually resonate with them when we actually got demand, how actually to supply it. Um, and we were able to do all of that in a, in a pretty manual offline way. It certainly wasn't elegant and it certainly wasn't pretty, but it helped us understand that there was a market there. We were able to generate about $35,000 of revenue and that can be enough at an early stage uh, to get someone like a Cuban interested. You know, I'm making seat investments now, and when I see dozens of thousands of dollars of revenue, then I start to believe that, you know, there's, there's probably enough for a, a seed round there. My second tip is, is linearly related to the first, which is that early on, um, there can be no ego or no pride, and it's important to have folks who are just ready to jump on whatever whatever tasks need to be done in the moment, regardless of how difficult or unpleasant or walking around Boston in the dead of winter they are. And so finding, for me, the right co-founders is critical. And ideally, they would have technical talent. But if they don't, you want to find people that can inspire and motivate and get other people to believe in something that isn't real. And if you aren't going to be able to find technical co-founders early on, the best thing you can find is inspirational, non-technical co-founders because they will help you um, find the right developers and product managers later on. And that was a, a choice that I made by founding a company with people who at the time were my friends and now are both friends and, and phenomenal business partners. A third tip that's critical is hire the best people as soon as you possibly can. So we... Um, early on, we were very cautious with our money. We were burning about $8,000 a month when, when Mark invested. And we just had this vision that, you know, this market is going to take a really long time to coalesce. And so we want to make sure we have five years to go after it. And the truth is, if you're budgeting your capital for five years, you're, you're probably not going to grow quickly enough to do anything interesting and somebody else will beat you to it. And so if I had to do it over again, I would have hired a really talented leader for the product management team sooner and tried even harder and been willing to spend even more money on a great CTO. I think we eventually got there on both of those topics, but it, it, it probably took too long. I'd also say start small. That's my fourth tip. In the same way that Rather, you know, now we're serving GE and Staples and lots of other big companies. At the beginning, we just went after the smallest customers that we could access with the least amount of friction, that would, wouldn't have complicated buying cycles and approval processes and, and legal requirements where we could, you know, sell them on a project one day and get it started the next. And that was critical for getting a really, a really quick sense of early momentum. And so it can be... It can be a, uh, a very alluring tonic to go after the largest customers at first because that's where the money is but I'd recommend that you want to prove your model as soon as you can particularly while you're getting the kinks out of the technology uh, and only begin approaching the larger customers later on 
the same time, my fifth tip is build to scale. So never make choices that put you in a very small box that you can't get out of later on. And so a few things that we did were we never defined Hourly Nerd as a resource for small businesses. What we said was it was a great way to unleash phenomenal business talent for companies from two employees to 200,000 employees. Um, we also built the technology once we had a real technology team in an incredibly flexible way that would let us scale later on. Uh, and both of those choices have paid big dividends as we've, uh, you know, increased from just three co-founders up to 47 employees and, you know, a handful of clients up to the 6,000 we're serving today. My sixth tip is to make sure that you're having fun. There are few slogs that are more difficult and more challenging over a long period than trying to start a company. And if you're not having fun, it, uh, it gets real old real fast. So. And I would say try to, at the end of every day, step back and say, what, you know, what did I accomplish today or what groundwork did I lay for, for the future that could be potentially valuable, even if I don't have a tangible accomplishment today? And, you know, what, what part of today gave me pleasure? Because you, one thing you, uh, when you're founding a company, you don't realize is that in other jobs, while you obviously have a boss and that has pluses and minuses, there's somebody to give you positive feedback. And the, the difficult thing of starting a company is there's really no external uh, validation of anything you've done other than from the market, which doesn't happen every day. And so you need to make sure you take a step back with your great co-founders and, and recognize what you've accomplished, which, which can be difficult and we definitely don't do enough. So at this point, I'd love to answer some of the customer questions that we solicited on Twitter through our, uh, through our handle, at uh, OurlyNerd, or through my mine directly, at BienermanRob. The first comes from um, Munir Sada, and the question is, how do you manage supply and demand balance on Hourly Nerd? It's a great question. When you're scaling a two-sided marketplace, a lot of what the supplier and the customer experience closely relates to is how liquid the market that they're seeing is. So when you show up as a supplier, how many folks are there looking to buy? And when you show up as somebody who's looking to buy, how many people are there willing to sell? And you can have the world's greatest product and the world's slickest, best designed interface. Um, but if you, don't, uh, if you don't have the correct ratio, it can be a really disappointing, really disappointing um, experience. So what we've done is we've very, been very deliberate about not growing too quickly. And, that, and that's the secret because you know, if you're a, a social network characterized by network effects, you wanna grow as quickly as you possibly can because there isn't any downside to, um, to growth. But in a marketplace, if you grow one side of the market too quickly, the other side ends up having great experience, but the side that's growing really fast is really disappointing. Um, and so we've, we've been very careful to never increase marketing spend more than five or 10% a month. And you know, we've built to a tech, uh, we've built to a sales and marketing team that's about 25 people now, um, but we've built that very slowly. So it's really been three or four additions per quarter over eight quarters rather than 25 folks at one time. And I think that's critical. When you're selling software, you, know, you need to get out there as quickly as possible. But with, with a marketplace, it's important um, to grow more slowly. Next question is, do you have any advice for people who have a tech idea but don't have any tech background? I don't know where to start. Yeah, and this is where uh, lean entrepreneurship comes in. So what I'd recommend for somebody who has a tech idea is, is actually trying to distill it down to when I have this idea, what I'm really wondering about is whether a few hypotheses are true. And so 
Um, let's think about Facebook. Facebook, one of the underlying assumptions is that human beings want to connect with each other online. Um, another one is that you can drive enough engagement from those people online to actually produce, produce a business that's worth something. And obviously, you know, over, since 2004, Facebook has, has proved that. Um, and they, they happen to have a gifted developer as the founder. Um, but one way you could have tested the Facebook assumption is if you basically used some very off-the-shelf um, basic software to create profiles. You, you wouldn't let the users create them yourselves, but you, you said, well, here's, here's a group of 100 people. I'm going to invest the time to make them all profiles and, you know, with their permission, of course. I'm going to throw it up online and see if they actually use it, see if looking at profiles of other human beings online is something that's interesting to them. Um, or for, for a different idea, you know, one business that we know really well is um, a company called BevSpot that is a uh, software that helps restaurants and bars reorder um, uh, beer, wine, and liquor uh, th through what's actually a pretty slick software interface. But the way that they began was actually going and speaking to customers and saying, if I could deliver this product to you, would it be interesting? Would it have value? And so a lot of the time there's actual customer work you can do about whether if you built something, it would have value that can, can validate whether it's worth actually trying to do it. And investors, really good seed investors will will see customer interviews and evidence of demand and people clicking through to a landing page as, you know, not obviously as valuable as a, as a tech um, product that's in the market. But, but if you can prove a lot of the hypotheses that, um, that you're actually targeting, that, that can get you a long way. Next question is, I have a business idea that involves a good amount of tech. Should I outsource it? It's another great question. You know, over the course of Hourly Nerd, we've gone from outsourcing to having a, a full tech team with tech product and design of, of 22 people. I think it's all about phases of your company. I think it's really difficult to have in-source technology at the very beginning unless you or a co-founder is technical, just because it's very difficult to raise the amount of money or have equity that's perceived to be worth it um, for, the, for the right kind of talented people at the early stages. I think over the long term, you must own your technology. That's that's an imperative, and um, you will be very frustrated with an outsourced firm because there's such a differing set of incentives, even if they own a small amount of equity, and just the the um, the cycle time required to go to an outside firm and tell them what you need, and then take them customer feedback. You know, at this point, we are so agile and, um, and, and flexible that when we get customer feedback, um, we have it incorporated in the product oftentimes by that afternoon. And you can just almost never really reach that level of, of speed um, with outsourced technology. The next is, I'm the CEO of a small biotech business. I've been the face of a brand for a while. I started the company, but I want to get away from being front and center and let my brand do the talking. I'm afraid I went in too far. How can I make this transition easy? So I think the key thing there is finding a phenomenal um, world-class marketer to own and define your brand. I think one uh, problem Hourly Nerd had for, for you know the first two years was the founders were so inextricably tied up in the brand that what the market was getting was some amount of our customer promise, but also just founder personality. So we were able to find an incredible woman named um, Devin Peters Meyer Johnson, who we were able to lure away from Procter and Gamble, where she was managing the um, the Venus Razor 
uh, you know, global brand marketing for that. And what she's done a really good job of is interviewing the founders and understanding what we want the company to stand for and why we think suppliers and and um, and clients are are in our marketplace every day. But trying to back away a little bit from some of the personal stuff. So obviously you want you want people to understand that you're passionate, but you know each of Pat and Peter and I has very strong beliefs about certain parts of the market. You know, many of them are right, but some of them are are deeply personal and move our customer value proposition away from something that might be appealing to 100% of the market and then really land with only 5% of the market. And I think what a great marketer can do or a marketing agency or a branding agency can do is help you understand the difference between your personal beliefs and a, a customer promise that actually resonates with clients in the market every day. And so um, my advice to, to you would be go find the best possible brand marketer you can, give them a nice amount of equity so they feel uh, wrapped up in the mission, but then also say, look, I want you to redefine the business as what we do for our suppliers, our customers, rather than something that I'm distinctly passionate about. The next question is, how much of a role do investors have in influencing big company direction? I want to open my company up to investors, but don't want to know what type of control in the business it will bring. I still want to own it. And all of these questions, by the way, came from actual hourly nerd customers. We emailed uh, out to a, a subset of them and, and heard these, these thoughts back. And if you obviously have any questions, please feel free to send them into either info at hourlynerd.com or, or to me directly, rob at hourlynerd.com. So the, the investor point is tricky, I think. On the one hand, you, you obviously are going to need capital to grow, and there's lots of great things that it brings, but any reasonable startup founder is passionate and wants a degree of control. I think the secret here is when, you're, when you have investors diligencing you and wondering about whether your company is going to succeed, I think it's equally important to go to the other folks they've invested in and diligence them. So even Mark Cuban, and obviously a wildly successful investor and startup founder and at this point media celebrity when he wanted to invest we actually went to three or four of his other portfolio companies and did interviews and said you know what's he like to work with and um you know do you have a good personal uh, rapport with him and the um the man who actually led our seed round in which mark participated is a guy named bob doris and He's an hbs alum that we met um actually at the the competition in which we presented and we just knew from the, the first minute we met Bob that we had a great interpersonal fit. And what Bob has been really great at is being an advisor and a, a source of um, guidance, but never stepping on our toes and leaving management to make the big decisions. And that's been equally true of Dan Nova at Highland Capital, who led both our Series A and Series B, where, you know, Dan has lots of points of view, and he, you know, he's a guy who... Uh, founded Lycos and did the seed investments in MapQuest and Ask Jeeves and is just an incredibly business savvy guy. But he also gives us the rope to make our own mistakes. And you know, we, you know, we've had a few points that we've been wondering about for really a couple of years at this point. Dan's made his point of view clear. We're moving there. Um, but at the end of the day, he respects that the company is ours and we're going to make the choices we make and he'll, he'll be there as an advisor. And, you know, the diligence that we did on Dan bore out exactly that, that he's a whip smart guy who's always around to help. But at the end of the day, knows that the entrepreneurs significantly, uh, significantly align with the success of the company. Um, so I think this is all just about diligencing, uh, investor types. You know, the next question is, uh, 
any good resources for understanding how the investor process works? Getting a lot of investment questions here. Um, so what I'd honestly recommend is try to find a friend or an ally who's raised money before um, or is a VC but isn't interested in your specific deal. Because I think every investment process is different. And I'm not sure, you know, obviously there's decent online resources. If you go to some of the blogs that the early stage seed investors write, there's a guy named Samil Shah who participated in our Series B who's quite thoughtful. Um, but understanding investment process is so critically tied to your specific company's situation. So is it a company that's going to be defined by the strength of your technology, or is it a marketplace defined by liquidity and momentum and traction? And so I think uh, this is one case where you really need to get personally specific advice. And so obviously, if you ping us, we have hundreds of people in our network who can be helpful um, for, for coaching young entrepreneurs and, and startup founders through the investor process. Um, I'd also go on AngelList and start pinging people and, and trying to understand if you know, they might be a helpful advisor. It really just takes one person who embraces your idea and your founding concept, um, and, and they can be phenomenal in, in, in coaching you through the process. If I had to hire key positions in my tech startup, what positions should they be, and why do I need them? I want to run my company very lean. It's a great question. You know, a lot of, a lot of what we did early on was wondering about when's the right time to add a full-time head of sales and when's the right time to add a head of marketing. My answer here is actually, I think, pretty straightforward. I would sit down and say, over the next year, my company needs to do A, B, and C to be successful. Then I would list the traits and the attributes and the experience that are actually required to accomplish A, B, and C. Don't make it more than three. Then I would look at you, yourself, and your, and your, and your co-founding team and say, it's reasonable, you know, while working normal hours, for me to personally accomplish you know, A and B, and C, either I don't have the bandwidth or the skill set for, and so I'm going to hire for C. So I, I would make it a very needs-based analysis. You know, we went um, a year and a half without a full-time head of sales because my co-founder Peter and I could really manage the sales team, but we, you know, started hiring tech people immediately as, as soon as we could uh, because none of us could write code, and we knew that that was obviously extremely important in, in making the company a success. And the, the last question I'm going to answer today is, when starting a company, how important is the CEO's digital brand in comparison to the company's digital brand? It's a fantastic question, and I wonder about this a lot personally, honestly. If you look at Twitter and the number of followers, which is obviously a public stat, um, you will see some companies who've chosen to have the executives not even have their own Twitter account, but really... Um, um, go to market through the company's handle. And then there's other cases where their company founders who have, you know, thousands or millions of followers and the companies have very few. To me, the right evaluation metric is how relatively important is um, the idea relative to um, the, the customer experience. And so I'd say for an idea-driven startup where it's, we're going to change the world because of this, I think that, that, that can be a great way for the CEO to have a really important brand because people don't um, buy ideas in isolation. People buy ideas that are backed by passionate individuals. And the same message coming from a corporate Twitter handle feels cold and impersonal, um, but from the CEO's Twitter handle can be incredibly um, inspiring. 
At the same time, though, if, if let's say you're a SaaS product that, that does what you know, HubSpot does, but, but 5% better, that's not really an idea brand. It's a, it's a um, product whose success will be defined by its customer experience and, and how well um, you know, its potential users feel it can solve their problems. And I think that's a case where the company really extolling its, its features and benefits can resonate a lot more than an individual pitching lofty themes. I'd say, you know, the personal answer to this question is we're kind of trying to do both. You know, I'm pretty active on on Twitter and Facebook and, and LinkedIn, but the company is, is even more active. And I think that's because we're partially an idea brand where, you know, we really believe that labor markets are um, in failure right now. And we are trying to make uh, additional opportunity for folks who've stepped out of the full-time workforce for personal reasons. At the same time, certain of our clients just use us because we're a little bit better than the, the consulting firms or a little bit better than the expert networks or a little bit better than the boutiques that they, they typically engage with. Um, and so I, if you look at what our company is talking about, our company is really talking about how we can help you. Um, you know, Use Hourly Nerd because we offer this. If you look at my Twitter handle, it, it tends to be more things uh, that, are, that are loftier and less direct, like, you know, labor markets are inherently broken and here's why. And we've tried to manage that tension, but obviously there's no exact right point. I think it's just important to understand how, how, how personally relevant what your company is trying to do is and how well you are how well you can communicate that that message to the market and um, obviously this is another question where getting an outside advisor could be really helpful and if, if anybody listening has specific questions on this point you should definitely feel free to email me it's just rob at hourlynerd.com this has been great we uh, will be rolling these out as I said every week um, and we're, we're really excited about this program and we uh, would love to take any user submissions either on Twitter or through the, the corporate email for future things you'd like us to talk about, guests you want us to have, uh, things you're wondering about, but, but hopefully we can make this a regular thing. Thanks a lot.